Have you ever heard of romantic theology? Sounds good, doesn't it? Let's find out more with Michael J. Christensen today on Church Welcome Hurts Welcome to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery for ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Romantic theology today. After becoming a Christian at the age of 13, I developed some habits and behaviors which could have been considered prudish, ironically, quite contrary to my generally outgoing personality. Not committing adultery or fornication before marriage became my obsession for over a decade, carefully studying the meaning of the word along with fornication, the way other teens might have devoured those certain National Geographics or the Playboys they could find. How was a Christian adolescent to survive a normal increase in testosterone, which felt more like an abnormal bomb going off in my body? Be careful of those things which could naturally lead to inappropriate sexual intimacy in your relationship with girls, I heard from Reverend Bob Letzinger during a midwinter conference at First Presbyterian Church in downtown Pittsburgh. Amazingly, he confessed to having a climax the first time he ever held a hand with a girl. His talk was famous, and we knew it was coming, but did he really say that? And he kept going warning about the hugs which lasted too long, the times alone without accountability, the, the dates that lasted too long into the night. As if all that wasn't enough, my very best friend sitting next to me, who currently holds a very prestigious position as a professor of theology at a premier evangelical seminary, he looked over at me and noticed the mark on my neck. He looked like he had seen a snake as his face turned red and his hands started to shake. Quietly and accusingly, he pointed at it, trying not to be obvious as the speaker continued to talk. That's a hickey, he said with wide eyes. I hadn't known about hickeys until the previous evening with my long-term high school girlfriend, Kathy. You remember those days your first love, the power of attraction, the depth of longing. Could that tell us anything about God in the church? Let's ask Michael J. Christensen, professor of theology at Northwind Seminary. Welcome to Church Hurts End. Hello, John. What a story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, Michael, you know, we're live on the radio right now and, and, uh, and on Facebook, but this is going to come out in a podcast form. And if some of your peers heard that introduction and imagined themselves, they, they would die. They would just say, but you're not doing it. You get what I'm saying, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to follow that, but, you know, you know, <laughs> you know uh, it's true, though. Our adolescent um, sexual experience 
expressions and explorations, all that libido, all the romantic relationships and imaginations that we have, all that, according to my mentor, C.S. Lewis, can be used by God as a lure into the spirit world, into the spiritual life. Um, it's like, it's like um, addiction, sexual obsessions, lust, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that is yet another path to the holy and to uh, holiness. Well, I think even with that introduction, people are going to think we're nuts. Um, (laughs) So if you would, uh, we titled this Romantic Theology. A lot of people have never heard of that. Would you give us just a basic introduction? What does that mean? Well, romantic theology does not mean being romantic about theology. It means being theological about romance, being theological about all the human experiences that are called romantic. Now, we look back to the romantic poets, you know, in the 19th century. There's, you know, Blake, there's Shelley, there's Wordsworth, there's Coleridge. These these lake poets, if you will, in UK, in England, they... They specialized in having these experiences in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Whitman out, Walt Whitman out there naked in the forest. You know, right. Coleridge and Wordsworth walking along and seeing a wa- beautiful waterfall and saying, "Look at the sublimity! That is sublime!" And having those experiences in nature, or having a spirit, uh, an experience in love, in sexuality. Uh, the Grecian urn, you know, two lovers almost kissing in that moment just before their lips uh, embrace. That special moment is called a romantic moment, a moment of transcendence. And so if you take those experiences in nature, experiences in love, experiences in, in, in the mystery of life and wisdom, and if you theologize about those experiences— that's romantic theology, says C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Okay, so um, our, we have a wide variety of um, listeners on the podcast. And for some, we mentioned the Inklings. And you and I know what that means. And it just conjures up all these wonderful thoughts. Um, would you give us, you know, the kind of elevator speech on who were the Inklings? The Inklings were a group, a company of poets, Christian poets in Oxford. England, in the 1930s and 40s and really into the 50s, these, uh, these, these Christians, primarily four, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and Owen Barfield, but there were 19, 20, or 21 of these, these men, all men. Uh, they tried to, you know, let Dorothy Sayers in and Joy Davidman, C.S. Lewis's wife, but it was mostly a male collection of poets who wanted to be romantic about their theology. They wanted to be, they wanted to write poetry and fiction and time stories and outer space science fiction. And they wanted to put their theology in between the lines. So the Inklings, they were called Inklings because they were practicing poets. They would meet twice a week. Uh, you probably have been, like I have, to the pub in Oxford called the Bird and Baby, the Eagle and the Child, its formal name. That's where they met on Tuesday mornings. And there that they'd share their, their, their laughter, their jokes, their poetry. 
And they also met Thursday evenings in C.S. Lewis's college rooms at Modeling College. And there they would read for hours. You know, Tolkien would read his Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis would read his Space Trilogy. And they'd stay up until the wee hours of the morning uh, over pipes and beer and tea. And uh, they would just wax eloquent and get caught up into what they were doing, very passionate about doing theology in the in the guise of poetry and stories. Okay, for, for, the, for those who get thrown by the word theology, because they just picture it as, you know, academic irrelevance, um, let's put this in a little bit different way. This was an unusual collection of people with a commitment to Christ, actual believed in a relationship really with Jesus, Lewis, who had famously come from being quite an atheist, uh, but they they were Christians in a time when it was not popular in academia to be Christians. I mean, this is really in England at that time, the intelligentsia were not going in the direction of theism, and so these guys were bucking the trends. There really was a rebellious side to them, wasn't there? Yeah, there really was. They were hit on two sides. On the one hand, they were in Oxford, Cambridge, academia, as you say, where they did not reward Christian faith. In fact, they held it against you when when this professor of philosophy, this professor of literature, dared to write science fiction, dared to write a book called Screwtape Letters about demons and devils and temptation. They actually punished him uh, you know, when it was time for advancement, when it was time to become a full professor, for example, they just passed him over. Uh, there was a lot of snobbery and, and really uh, punitive academic measures. You know, the, the stakes are pretty low in academia sometimes, and so they use those low stakes to keep people down. It's amazing how, the, uh, how they was punished that way. But also, uh, the Christ, some of the Christians in his time in the 30s and 40s, modern theology was emerging. So you had the rise of neo-orthodoxy, the rise of modern Catholicism, and Lewis and his friends were classical, orthodox Christians, and and they didn't feel at home in this modern era. So they bucked the system, modern poets, modern literature, as well as modern theology they had no time for, although they engaged it but their commitments lay, lay elsewhere in, the, in biblical, classical, orthodox theology. Uh, just for fun, let's, let's um, get out of you, because you know the details of this stuff. I mean, you've written, talk, talk about a little bit about what you've written, um, particularly as we mentioned Lewis. Where, where, where's your work been? Well, yeah, I, I found C.S. Lewis first in high school, but in, and he kept me in the church. When, I, when the church made no sense, I read Mere Christianity, and I said, oh, an intellectual Christian who, who actually speaks to my mind and not just, you know, trying to get my heart committed. So I, I found Lewis in high school. I, I took him with me to college, and in college, wrestling with, the, with, with uh, you know, what's it all about, what's truth, uh, Francis Schaeffer came to you know, came to us, and I was intrigued by Labrie and wanted to study with Schaefer. But Schaefer had this view of revelation of propositional truth and doctrines, and Lewis had the stories and the poetry. And so when, I was a literature major in college, and when it came time to, for my senior year, I wanted to do an honors project 
And so I wrote a senior honors project on my mentor, C.S. Lewis in literature, and I wrote it about a theological subject, which was scripture, the authority, the inspiration, even the inerrancy of scripture. And my college uh, senior project called C.S. Lewis on Scripture uh, was eventually published, actually the, published the next year after I graduated. In fact, I, you know, I have a copy here if you want to see what I looked like back in the Back in the day, there's my college picture with my book, C.S. Lewis on Scripture. And it's it's been in print all these 40-plus years. It's, it's stayed in print, no longer in hardback. But it was my first book, first of seven, and my favorite book, because in that book, I, I, I tackle the difference between theology from above, which is dogmatic, doctrinal, propositional, as Schaefer says, right. true truth, and theology from below, which is reflecting on human experience, the real lived experience of human beings, including my own lived experience. And so I, I uh, the book sold a lot of copies, and, and we use it still today as a textbook in, in Northwind Seminary, where I teach. And I read it years, years Did ago. Um, Bless because your heart. I uh, actually got involved with uh, – Dr. John Woodbridge in responding to Rogers and McKim work on the authority of scripture. And we can't get down that side road. Um, uh, <laughs> but the, the bottom line in the book though, um, even that the Lewis's understanding of literature and the way kind of God communicates through story, um, pretty powerful stuff, but I want to tell, I want you to tell us um, a story about Lewis, but before I do that, let me just, um, take a break for a moment and mention uh, what I do with Standing Stone in terms of working with pastors and Christian leaders um, around the nation and even the world. Um, really, these are the people working on the front lines with folks who are dealing with spiritual issues in their life. And, and those leaders can hurt sometimes. And even as we talk about some of the greats that you may know, they hurt and struggled too. Uh, but that's what I get to do. I get to work with them, but I do that solely because of the free will contributions of good people like you who are listening, who want to support that and understand it. And if you would just go to churchhurtsand.org and uh, there's a donate button there that takes you right to the standing stone page. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. It's needed. We're living in a time when people in ministry are struggling. Things are changing. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that here. Uh, but also, if you'd hit the subscribe button, you see if you're listening on uh, a podcast, uh, subscribe to it, forward it to a friend, uh, or the same in terms of uh, YouTube. While I say that, go back and look um, in our previous shows, and we can really be a good show to binge listen to during the summertime, uh, but go back to the show and find the show with Michael Phillips called Fiction Meets Life, uh, probably the world's foremost expert, in my opinion, on George McDonald, who is the predecessor to the people we're talking about today. And well, I mentioned them, you say something too, Michael, or why, why don't you say something? You, you've developed a new course at Northwind Seminary. You can go to northwindseminary.org, and there's actually a course in romantic theology, something I never had an opportunity to take. Yeah, the romantic, the romantic theology course that I teach is the first of six 
courses on the Oxford Inklings, on the romantic theology of the Oxford Inklings. And so they, you take my course first on the Inklings, and then you go on to C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and then the other Inklings, like uh, honorary Inklings, Dorothy Sayers, T.S. Eliot, uh, Jack Lewis's brother Warren. So we have six courses, and these six courses together constitute a program a doctoral program for people who have a master's. You can also take it as a master's program. But this doctoral program in romantic theology, we believe at Northwind, is the first of its kind to do this kind of theology. Mm-hmm. It's been a neglected field. Um, and so I, I'm, I I'm really excited to have this. This is our second year. I and, can't uh, imagine getting credit for that. I mean, it's like that is just pure joy. I'm sitting Not just academic I... credit, but doctoral credit. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I, I have your book too, from uh, that one that I just mentioned in terms of Michael Phillips. I, I said, um, Michael's such a recent discovery. Of course, I, I read McDonald and Lewis and Williams and all those guys years ago. Um, but I'm going to be reading um, books by this man. So prolific, but the, the passion for the love of God is the main emphasis that we just can't talk about enough. Michael Phillips, uh, you know, has put George MacDonald, right, back into print, back into a, uh, an accessible way of reading his books. But back in his time, back in Lewis's time, George MacDonald was the mentor of the Inklings. And when Lewis read Fantasties by George MacDonald, uh, before he became a Christian, he read that book by George MacDonald, and he says, my imagination was baptized and when he had a baptized imagination after reading George MacDonald, then he said, my creative imagination took flight, and I began to see things in my mind's eye, in my intuition, the things of God. God revealed great truths and beauty through the imagination when it's baptized. Now, if it's not baptized, you know, it can go a lot of dark places. But I love what Michael Phillips is trying to do, bringing George MacDonald back into the conversation in writing Christian romance and encouraging Christians to be creative, knowing that when we create, we are most like God. Sub-creators, says Tolkien, right? Co-creators, Lewis sometimes says. When we create, we're most like God, and when we use our creative imagination, we are accessing directly God's reality and truth in the pattern of stories and myths. Why, Why bother with with this top level of dogmatic, propositional, true truth, when you can have the the direct access through the stories, mm. the poetry. I, I'm, I'm struck in, in your work, you straddle that um, gap between academia and really genuinely passionately being concerned for a person's spiritual life. I mean, for you, it's not just let's do the intellectual stuff. You believe this stuff like that it really matters and that God is really real and that people can have a relationship with God. So that tells me that there has to be a point in your life where you came and said, eh, I'm either not so sure this is all true or I'm just hurting and I'm not going to go with this anymore. What are you willing to tell us? 
I could tell you a lot of things. I can't use today's as a confessional booth, but I do have my stories, as you do, as we all do, because you never get out of this life, you know, without pain and suffering and, and failure. So let's see, you know, I, I remember when my daughter, uh, Megan, was diagnosed with leukemia when she was three and a half years of age. Uh, she's 28 now, and she's a leukemia survivor. And just as if she never had it. But when she was three and a half, we thought she was going to die, right? And so uh, it was a faith challenge for all of us, my wife and I. We, we, we sort of dealt with it differently. But I remember um, Megan being in the hospital with my wife, with her in the hospital, and I was with our other daughter, Rachel, uh, teaching at Drew University at the time. And there was, in a moment, in that first week, uh, in my faith crisis, in my doubt, in wondering, is God going to, you know, uh, take my daughter? Is she going to die? And I'll be blaming God forever for this. I was in great darkness and doubt. And it was a crisis. And and, and about the, the third or fourth day into this, uh, there was, uh, they announced it to my daughter in her elementary school to go and look at the planets. The planets are going to line up Venus and, and Mars and Saturn, you're going to see the four planets lined up in a row. And, and so I said, Rachel, let's go to the telescope on top of the science building in Drew University. And let's look to that telescope and let's look at your planets. You've got to do this for a, a homework assignment. Let's go see it close up. So we went up to the top of the science division, up to the telescope and beheld the rings of Saturn and Venus and Mars, and Jupiter, all lined up like a necklace around a, a cosmic figure of sorts. And I looked to, I looked to Rachel, who was uh, seven, six, six or seven, and I said, Rachel, isn't it wonderful how God put those planets in the sky just to remind us of how much God loves us? I was feeling it. I was feeling loved and, and, and I thought it was kind of a miraculous metaphysical phenomenon just for me. And I said, Rachel, isn't it wonderful what God has done? And she turned to me and she said, Dad, this happens all by itself every 100 years. <laughs> and I said, that's what they teach them in the schools, right? Every 100 years, the planets line up like this. For me, it was a mystical moment. I said to Rachel, you're a deist, and I'm a mystic. <laughs> and we laughed about that to this day. But you know, the good news is Megan recovered from leukemia every December 1st, which is D-Day, Diagnosis Day. We, Harry Potter style, I lift a glass and I toast to the girl who lived. Mm. And that was a, that was how I came back from, a, you know, could have left the church over that one. Um, Suffering has a way of causing crisis. You know, John, I, I lost both my parents in the last two years. My mom died last year during COVID, not from COVID, but during COVID. And uh, my wife right now is in around a radiation treatment. So there's a lot of opportunities for me and for any of us to lose heart, uh, to doubt, to get into depression and, and, and doubt the goodness and the love of God. And so for me, uh, romantic theology is a way to reflect on my own human experiences, my failures, my shortcomings, my, my, uh, my sins, 
my childhood uh, or ad- my childhood wounds or my adolescent explorations like you shared at the beginning. And you can reflect on those and find in that a string. Uh, and if you pull that string, you can get to the very heart of God. And it's a, it's a redemptive way of looking at your experiences, not, not discounting them or counseling, canceling them out, but using them as a pathway to the holy. And that's what I've tried to do. You know, a book was written years ago, a Christian book that just has become famous, I guess, because of Oprah or whatever, but the love languages you're probably familiar with yeah, and like very popular because it, it's useful. It's really useful for people. Then, but they, people start talking about what's your love language, you know, is it this or this? And, um, mine, by the way, is gifts of service, you know, and that's really different than somebody who's this physical touch, you know, it's amazing when it's good stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I wish another book on love would become just as popular and it's C.S. Lewis's four loves. If people really want to understand, um, in a, again, that's still kind of an, it's not intellectual, but it's not hard to read. But to really get the love of God and tell, tell me, what do you think? Yeah, that's such a great book. It's a classic book now. But, and most preachers, you know, they, they borrow from that book when they preach about the four Greek words for love. You probably preached this yourself. I have a number of times. But yep. Lewis is the first to give us four Greek words for love that we use the English word love only. You know, eros, erotic love, eros, storge, which is affection like you'd have for your pets and affection for each other. Uh, philia, the Philadelphia, uh, city of brotherly love, friendship, shared interest. And then agape or agape, God's love, unconditional love. And these four loves are like in a hierarchy where you can pass from one to another and back down again because if you reflect on all your eros and storge, philia, and agape, ways of relating to the other, you're doing theology. So Lewis wrote a book about this. He prepared a broadcast talk on this. In fact, John, he did a radio broadcast uh, of 10 episodes. He prepared 10 episodes on the four loves. He recorded it in London, I think in 1957, for the American Protestant Hour. There was a radio show back in the late 50s called The Protestant Hour, and he prepared this for them. And they started to run it. I think they got through maybe two episodes, and they said, oh, no, this stuff is too raunchy. Uh, this <laughs> Lewis guy is too direct. He's using these words like eroticism and, 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 and expressions of love between men and women that are, and he uses lust. He's talking about lust and pederasty and, and sodomy. And, I mean, he's using these big words, but they, we know what they mean, and they wouldn't run it. They stopped the, they stopped the production. And it didn't come out until, I don't know, probably the 70s when Word Records picked it up and started broadcasting it. And we have it today, but it didn't, it didn't air at the time because, of, because it's just about sex. And we have problems with talking about sex in spiritual and theological ways. But you should read that book. That's a great book. Yeah, and it's romantic is. theology at its best. Um, and Lewis is, um, we're, we're talking about works that aren't fiction, but I continue to go back to, to the works of fiction that came out from the inklings that let us fill our mind in, in an easy way, if you will, in our relaxing reading 
to, to point us to a, a sense of love that I come to believe is so needed. I grew up with uh, my main mentor would always say the, the people don't understand the holiness of God today. And, and that's, and I get how that's so important, but when I'm out there in the world and I talk to people who've rejected church and who've been hurt by church, they seem to remember church talking a whole lot about a really angry kind of nasty God who's just ready to get them. And it's very hard for a lot of people to grasp the God of the Bible, which has a love affair with mankind, right? Yeah, God is a great lover, a jealous lover, it says in scriptures, who wants us for himself. And we know from the Westminster Confession, right, we theologically, the, the, the chief end of human being is to love God and enjoy God forever. So if God wants us to be fully alive and whole so that we can love God and enjoy God forever, how do we get there? We are wooed. We are lured into the love of God. We're not argued into God by correct orthodox theology in this point and that point. It's not about academics, uh, and it's not even about our reason. Our reason can lead us far but not to the heart of God. It takes a leap of faith. It takes a love affair. It takes a great love or a great suffering to bring you into, the con- to the con- into contact with the living God. It takes a transformation. And so this is what, this is what Lewis was about. You know, my, you, you mentioned your mentor who wrote, wrote, a, wrote about the um, holiness of God and knowing God and knowing Scripture, and that's all right and good. I've read, you know, J.I. Packer of, of, of Knowing God and, and Tozer on, on, on the holy. Um, but, you know, when you read a poet, when you read poetry and, and listen to stories and you get caught up in the myths that are given to us and then read scripture, you can see what God is doing in luring us to himself. One of my mentors, John, is um, uh, Father uh, Brendan Manning back in the day, and I know he he struggled all his life, you know, with alcoholism, and he had a lot of struggles and pain and suffering. I, I know his life was 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 a terrible struggle with his own shadows and demons and dragons. But we all have those. We all we're all addicted to something. But here's here's the great Father Brendan Manning. When he came to live with us in New York at our church for a while, when he was um, in transition. He said to us uh, one day, God has two words for you on judgment day. Do you ever imagine what God will say to you on the day of judgment when you stand before the pearly gates and God says to you, why should I let you in? You know, that kind of conversation. What will God say to us on judgment day as, as believers? And he said this, first, the Lord will ask you, show me your wounds, show me your wounds so that I may heal them. Mm. And then we either, we either we have wounds or we don't have wounds. But if we have wounds, we show them to the Lord and he heals sure. us fully. And then the second thing he says, the question I have, the question God will ask us on Judgment Day is this. Did you know how much I loved you? Did you know how much I loved you? It's not all the judgment things that the preachers sometimes say it is, because we know that God is a just God, yes, a jealous God for sure, but a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. 
And at the end of the day, none of us have a leg to stand on before the judgment seat of Christ. And mercy is all we can hope for. And that's why we'll be let in, as Brennan Manning says. And Lewis says the same thing. He says, given all our struggles and our moral ambiguities and our addictions, at the end of the day, we cast ourselves on the mercy of God and we open ourselves to the healing and wholeness available in process, not all at once, not instantaneous, but as we yep. grow in faith. And Michael, we're, we're going to have to leave it there. We could talk forever, and, and I hope you'll come back. Um, we're winding down season two here, but when season three comes, there's so much more. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about, but really do encourage people. If you're, if you're thinking about further study, talk about a fun degree to get. Lose yourself in some of the greatest um, authors of the past century. But let me just close with a word. At Church Hurts Anne, we regularly discuss uh, how pains in church seem to coincide with pains in life in general. Six years ago, I was struggling with the cumulative effects of the blows life had sent my way. I never really recovered from a terribly disappointing divorce. The bruises from church politics didn't seem to be going away. Another disappointing relationship had a toll beyond anything I had measured. And then I got the phone call, which promised to tip the scales. My 29-year-old son had been paralyzed after diving off a boat. I knew a loving God didn't mean an easy life, but the weight was really too much. Foolishly, I thought extending happy hours might numb the pain. It didn't play out that way, but I sure wouldn't have guessed what did happen. Two years later, I was sitting on the island of Patmos, the final destination of the only apostle who didn't die a martyr's death. Patmos is a desolate little Greek island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey. It was one of the things on my bucket list, even though I didn't know I had a bucket list. It was a great place to read and reflect upon the words of John, the disciple who referred to himself as the one who Jesus loved. First John 1 John 1.3.1, he writes, how great is the love of the Father. How great he has lavished it upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, he said. Aren't those amazing words? Am I really a person who God has lavished love upon? If I care so much about my paralyzed son, pondering him every day, wanting his best, could it be that God cares about me that much or even more? Is the Bible really a love story between God and man? Should Orthodox theology always be romantic theology? I think that's a question worth answering not just in the seminary classroom, but in the quiet rooms of homes throughout the world. Perhaps it could be in yours. A loving father, God, it's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Go and enjoy God today, won't you? Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement.
divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchfirstand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?